Hi, you're listening to Health Disparities Podcast from Movement is Life, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Bill Finnerfrock, and today I'm discussing health disparities and health policy with Dr. Charles Nelson. Uh, Dr. Nelson is uh, involved with Movement is Life, and he's also the Chief Joint Replacement of Joint Replacement Service and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Uh, Nelson. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and how you got involved in uh, Movement is Life and this whole issue of uh, trying to eliminate health disparities? Well, yeah. Uh, so my name is Charles Nelson. Again, as you mentioned, I'm the chief of adult reconstruction at the University of Pennsylvania and a, a professor of orthopedics there. And I've had a long interest in what I would say is health equity. Um, and, uh, and it's health equity, not just with regard to uh, disparities as they relate to race and ethnicity, but also patients who are obese, uh, rural America. Uh, you know, I think that everybody should have access to the same quality health care uh, nationally and internationally, um, and that's, that's been a passion of mine. So, I mean, if you're, so by implication, you're saying obviously that people don't have access, uh, and um, do you think that's a conscious policy that uh, folks who were looking at uh, various as- aspects of health care said, you know, we want to create uh, this disparate uh, system? Any, uh, you know, how, do, how do you see that playing out, or why does that happen in your community? You know, I, I don't think it's. I don't think, for the most part, it's conscious. There may be in in certain area areas. Uh, there may be certain different people who are involved in different parts of the political system may have uh, certain uh, reasons for uh, um, wanting to, let's say, divert funds to another area that is more important to them or that they're more passionate about. Uh, so I don't think it's a conscious effort in that setting, but I think it's a combination of some of the um, uh, unconscious biases that, that people have that can sometimes lead to some of these issues, uh, as well as the, the, the reality of there's a limited number of dollars, uh, and health care is very, very expensive to provide quality health care. Um, and the patients that don't advocate for themselves uh, who are less informed and less powerful within the political system uh, may not get the resources that are necessary. And, and, and those include uh, underrepresented groups, um, uh, but it also, it also may include uh, people with lifestyles that aren't in the mainstream, uh, and it may include people who are overweight, have significant health problems that many Americans don't have and um, aren't as sensitive to. So when you get paid now uh, for what you do as a surgeon, uh, the common method of payment is what we call fee-for-service. You know, you provide a service and you get paid for it. Um, But there's a lot of talk about moving to something called, called bundled payments. And I know there's some concern about uh, whether or not bundled payments are going to make the kinds of things you've just talked about uh, potentially even worse. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that bundled payment initiative and and how you think that may impact uh, patients and populations? Certainly. So, so you know, in the current uh, uh, fee structure, people get paid for what they do, and there's 
the downside of that is whether people do a good job or they don't do a good job, they essentially get paid the same amount. So there is a there's an incentive for providers to to try to increase volume and not necessarily value or quality. So so a lot of the current um, healthcare reform is looking at what they call value-based healthcare, where which makes a great deal of sense. And sure, really who, is, can, who can object to value-based? Yeah. So and and rather than people getting reimbursed for quantity or volume, they're getting reimbursed for quality. The problem is that that assumes that everybody's treating the same population. So if you have a situation where providers have choices in whom they're going to take care of and they're going to be penalized for higher readmission rates or higher complication rates, they may cherry pick or in converse lemon drop uh, the patients who are at higher risk. And there's many studies that demonstrate that patients with lower socioeconomic status have high risk of readmissions and complications. Patients who don't have a, let's say, a stable home to go to, or if they have a home, they live in a third floor walk up in a bad neighborhood. And let's say that person's having a joint replacement surgery. The ability for that patient to be able to go home immediately after surgery, not need to go to a rehab facility, not need to go to a uh, skilled nursing facility is significantly less than someone who lives in a suburban environment uh, with a uh, family member who's home with them in a, in a safe neighborhood where even if their bedroom's on the second floor, they have a guest bedroom on the first floor where they can stay. So, so you end up in a situation where even if there's no complication, the cost of treating the patient who's going to need a, uh, a skilled nursing facility is greater. And we, we know from multiple studies that the patients who go to skilled nursing facilities have a higher, not only higher cost, but they also have higher complication rates, higher readmission rates. Uh, so this creates incentives where uh, providers may choose to, if they're getting a set amount of dollars, they may try to use those dollars to take care of patients that are going to be less expensive in order to maximize their profit. So I'm, I'm, I mean, the, the things that you talked about, all those... Um post-hospital, post-surgical cost, but you're doing the surgery. So how does that impact you uh, as a surgeon? Why is that, um, you know, affecting, and you use the terms cherry-picking or lemon-dropping, of, of for you to, to see one patient versus another? Right. Well, with bundled care initiatives, essentially what's happening is that, the, the, that a facility... Or a, so a hospital, a, a, either a hospital or a group of providers. Uh, it, it's it's not defined specifically because it, it 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 can vary depending on location. But they receive a certain bundle of money in order to take care of that patient through the continuum. So the the advantage of that is it creates an incentive in order to try to optimize the quality and minimize the cost of taking care of those individuals and not do unnecessary um, work. So for example, if normally patients after surgery did three months of physical therapy and that was very, very expensive and they went to a, a rehab facility afterwards which was very expensive and that same person could go home and do uh, a online uh, demonstration of exercises and not do formal therapy then the cost 
could be markedly decreased. And if there's no compromise in the end result, then that's favorable. So it does allow people to be creative and create uh, better ways of providing health care uh, more economically. Uh, the problem is that not every patient is going to be able to follow the same uh, format, and it creates incentives for uh, either the provider or the hospital or the system that is in charge of that bundle to try to choose the patients that they're going to have to spend less resources in if they're going to get the same amount of money. So if, if I'm hearing you right, um, you don't mind being held accountable uh, for what you can control your work as a surgeon and the things that are directly related to what you do uh, in the OR or, or how you help to do patient follow-up. But it, it sounds like part of the problem is that, that the way that this is structured is there are, are things that are outside your control that, that may affect uh, the cost uh, of the patient. And one of the things I've read is some patients are more likely to have to be rehospitalized. Um, after surgery, can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly, and I agree. I agree one hundred percent. So I think not only do I not mind, I think we should be held accountable for the things that we sh can control. I, I think that's everybody in any discipline should be held accountable for the things that they can control. Uh, but the the one of the concerns is that in a setting where there are patients who are already marginalized based on the data, who already have decreased access to health care, that already uh, have certain procedures done at a much lower rate than the normal population. This is the same group of patients that, with, um, that are often at least perceived to have a higher risk of complications, readmissions, to be more expensive to take care of. So these patients could be marginalized even further uh, with some of the health care reform. So, for example... Patients who are morbidly obese, who are very overweight. What is what is that? So it's somebody who's very heavy. So if somebody is, is extremely heavy or they weigh a lot for their height, um, uh, those patients we know ha are more likely to be readmitted. They're more likely to develop infections. They're more likely to develop certain complications after surgery. Uh, and those patients are even more affected by advanced arthritis from a disability standpoint. Now, at some point, their complication rate may get so high that surgical management may not be uh, appropriate or reasonable. But even at levels where most surgeons would agree that they benefit tremendously from uh, surgical intervention, the complication rates are higher but not inordinately high. When you start saying, you know, there's some studies at the Mayo Clinic that demonstrate somebody at a BMI of 50, which is... And BMI is... So BMI is the body mass index. And a BMI of 50 would be somebody who weighs, let's say, about 350 pounds and is like five foot three. So, so that would give you an idea. But somebody at that level, their risk of complications is... It, based on the Mayo Clinic data, about three times higher for infection and many other complications compared to somebody of normal weight. But the absolute number is still pretty low. So if somebody of normal weight's infection rate is uh, 4 in 1,000 and they go up to 12 in 1,000, is that rate so high that they don't benefit from the surgery? Probably not. So, But 
if you're the person taking care of those patients and you have an inordinate number of those patients to take care of, number one, if your hospital is going to be penalized for high rate admission rates, are they going to let you take care of those patients? So many hospitals now do not allow those patients to be taken care of. And when you think of those patients trying to lose weight when they have severe arthritis and very, very limited ability to move, limited mobility, it's very hard to lose weight when you can't exercise at all. And many of those patients actually end up gaining weight rather than losing weight. So, so this, is a, this is a big concern of how, how these patients are going to continue to get cared for in a, in a system that doesn't stratify risk based upon the risk of complications. So, so what do we do about it? Um, I mean, it sounds like the, the bundled payments um, and maybe some other things that they're doing are well-intentioned. But uh, there's some things missing from uh, from how that is uh, how they're designed. Are there things that um, you think that can be done from a policy perspective uh, that might be able to address that so you can uh, achieve a situation where you you know as you've acknowledged are held accountable, but perhaps not held accountable for things that are beyond your control. Yeah, so I think there's a few different strategies that could be uh, employed. One is to essentially grade people on a curve based upon the complexity of the patients that they're taking care of. Now, that can become a little bit difficult for certain situations where we don't have good enough data to create an appropriate curve. So where we, where we don't have that, what I would suggest is that we, we basically look at a group of patients that providers can all agree are of similar risk and look at those patients as the patient's uh, that we're going to uh, hold people accountable to meet a certain to meet the same standard, so that we're comparing apples to apples when we're comparing providers and health systems. And for the patients that fall outside of that group, either um, not look at that group of patients right now, look at their data so that you can create that curve over time. Um, so if you have a hospital, for example, that has the exact same outcomes for this, the, the, the Apple patients, uh, see how much higher, but they have a higher percentage of orange patients, see how much higher the complication rate is at that hospital for the orange patients, and then create that type of uh, adjustment in the future. So uh, it, it, it sounds like what you're talking about, and it's uh, a term that's not, um, it, it's been around a long time, is some form of risk adjusting. Yes. Um, and I know that in things in, in the policy area where it's not unusual, for example, with an insurance company, that if they have patients who have um, what are considered to be higher risk, that uh, they might get paid a little bit more for those. Uh, is that the kind of thing you're talking about here? Yes. Yeah. So I think either uh, paying, if you're talking about a bundled situation, paying more for those patients once you once you can target those patients so that now the, the system is not overly incented to take care of those patients, but they're also not, uh, they're also not incentivized not to take care of those patients. So you That's wanna, like cherry picking. Correct. So yeah. you want to basically create a situation where if it's 20% more expensive to take care of a group of patients, then you're reimbursed 20% more, you know, or in a zero-sum gain you're reimbursed, you're, you know, reimbursed 10% more and 
10% less for, you know, uh, a standard group of patients. But, but I think that that's, that is a situation where you don't create the incentives uh, for uh, providers and institutions to, to lemon drop. Yeah, the, the, the risk adjusting that I've, I've seen uh, typically, though, is related to a disease state. For example, if, if a patient has diabetes or high blood pressure or other medical problems, uh, the system makes those kinds of risk adjustments. But it sounds like what you're talking about is, you know, that's one part of it, but there, there are this, there's this other aspect. I think the term that's often uh, tied to that are what they call social uh, determinants of health. And, and I don't, you know, we, we haven't typically adjusted for that. Is that kind of the distinction here? Is that what's happening? Well, I think there's both disease states. There's also uh, different. So when we start talking about bundled care initiatives, uh, as opposed to what they call accountable care organizations, or which often may uh, look at population, population health. Um, but uh, when you start talking about bundled care, a lot of those would be procedural-based. So let's say somebody's undergoing joint replacement surgery. That is a procedure that is perceived to be a similar cost regardless of who gets it. So that's one of the reasons why um, many um, systems have, or policy uh, makers have said, well, this is a great example for bundled care initiatives because the cost of doing the procedure should be the same the outcome should be the same, uh, you know, the amount of there. And, and this way we can have the providers and the systems all collaborate and align themselves to try and figure out how this can be done uh, less expensively, which makes a lot of sense and is a, is a great concept. Um, but again, if the cost isn't necessarily the same or the complication rate isn't necessarily the same, then we need to have a way of risk adjusting for that. So, so it could be a disease state or it could be a procedure, uh, for example. The other issue as far as social, social determinants of health, that we've had a tough time really appropriately adjusting for socioeconomic status, because we know that those factors significantly impact on outcomes. You know, so if, 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 if you live in a, uh, in a place that's that's more dangerous. Let's 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 talk asthma, for example. So, people who live in urban areas where they're more uh, more exposed to dust and smoke, they have much more frequent exacerbations of asthma. So, if you're talking about an asthma specialist and they're being held to, uh, and I don't know the specific standards that that asthma specialists are held to, but uh, utilizing certain medications and minimizing uh, ER visits, ER or, visits or, yeah. or, or those type of uh, complications, and you're dealing with a population that is exposed to a lot more um, uh, things that are likely to insult their asthma, that's probably not a fair comparison compared to somebody who lives in open air where there's less, um, less uh uh, environmental triggers uh, for the asthma. So, so, so those are the type of things that we're talking about. Really adjusting for those type of issues. So there's, um, you know, some people have talked about trying to do a better job of looking at these things as part of the development of these bundled payments. It, it's, you know, not saying don't do it, but um, look at more. So if you look at um, at the Medicare level, the bundled payments 
right now it says as long as you can reduce cost or improve quality and in you know it's not clear what that means then that's a valid you know payment methodology it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is that there may be some other things that that in development of these models folks should look at such as you know either risk adjustment for disease state or risk adjusting for social determinants of health. Um, is that kind of part of the message uh, that, that you'd like folks to hear? Yes, yes. So, so what we don't want is we don't want people improving outcomes just by changing the patient population that they're taking care of, right? So, so we don't want somebody to have a lower readmission rate because before they used to operate on patients at all weight levels, at all uh, different levels of disease. They would take care of complicated infections that came from other institutions. And now they've said, you know what? We're getting penalized if we have higher complication rates. We're going to improve our outcomes. We're going to lower. We're not going to do anything differently. All we're going to do is we're going to just stop taking care of the patients that are at higher risk. Yeah, so So, it sounds like the the hospitals, you know, or the institution or the provider is going to get good quality scores. Um, but because of this kind of self-selection, there's a whole community of people who just aren't getting access to care. So there's a whole group of patients who either don't get access to care or who get shunted to another provider that's willing <laughs> to take care of them uh, and may have worse quality scores. And, and we've seen that in some, um, some facilities that are... Um, uh, some of the facilities that really take care of the really high-risk groups, some of which may be going out of business. In, Those in are the areas. safety net hospitals, or what are generically referred to as safety net hospitals? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw a study recently that um, when they looked at hospital readmission uh, policies, and um, they found that a disproportionately high percentage of, of safety net hospitals were hit with those readmission policies. And the, the analysts went back and said, all right, well, let's, let's adjust for the social determinants of health and look at the community that those hospitals and, and then, you know, adjust for that. And when they adjusted for that, uh, I think it was half of the hospitals that had been hit with penalties uh, wouldn't have been hit, hit with penalties. So the, the idea was that it wasn't that the hospital was providing poor care or doing something that resulted in folks being readmitted, but it was this idea that factors outside the community that that hospital was caring for had certain uh, uh, aspects or things going on there that that caused that outcome. There's no doubt, and 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 the other concern I've seen that same study. The other concern is, you know, that this is a strategy to decrease cost, and in some cases it may surprisingly actually increase cost. And and the question is, how does that happen? Well, let's say no hospital is willing to take care of this complicated, infected patient. And as a result, there is a delay in treatment. And now the infection is so far advanced that it's no longer curable, or at least not curable as easily. So it requires multiple procedures, much more expensive to treat. a resistant organism develops that requires antibiotics that are much more expensive. You know, you can see in the setting of a cancer, a cancer spreads to the point that it's no longer curable. Uh, you know, something that could have been managed cardiac-wise with medication now needs cardiac, you know, coronary bypass surgery. So in some cases, when there's delays, this can make the entire uh, treatment much more expensive because people aren't 
willing to step in earlier when the cost could have been less. Um, Dr. Nelson, we could probably talk for another hour. Uh, unfortunately, we, uh, we don't have uh, enough time to go into everything we'd uh, love to talk to you about, but I want to thank you for talking with us today and uh, for this podcast and, and health disparities and uh, wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you. Thank you very much.